This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm in the famous French Quarter in New Orleans, standing on the shore of the Mississippi River with Tim Wachowski. He's an elementary school teacher during the day, but at night, he's a tour guide with New Orleans Ghost Adventure Tours. He also plays saxophone. Tim loves telling stories about the city's most famous criminals and its most notorious murderers. So talk about a little bit about what you know about crime in this city. So crime is like very much in the bones of New Orleans. It's a big part of it. Back early 1800s, so like this whole area here, we didn't used to have the levee, like the wall that separates the river in. The ships are coming right up to dock right here. So everybody on that next street, on Decatur Street, is catering towards um, the sailors who are coming in. So first thing that guys want after they get back out from sea is they want a woman and they want a drink. So they're all dance halls. Um, And these are known for being like terribly seedy places. Like there's so much robbery, so much chlamydia, so much murder running up and down the streets that the police just like wouldn't even come. What's like a kind of a favorite story in history for you? So the one I was thinking about for tonight was specifically the story of Mary Jane Bricktop Jackson. So I thought that she originally got the name Bricktop because she liked to smack people on top of the head with a brick. Um, turns out she's just a redhead, pretty normal. Um, she did like to stab people, though. Though We, uh, we know that she stabbed at least four, um, and those are just the times that she went to jail. Um, she also carried with her at all times this custom-made knife. Um, So she would hold it in the palm of her hand and it would go out six inches one way, six inches the other way. And the legend is she could just stand in one spot and then move her wrist and just slash people's throats. Wow. Yeah. So in these stories, does this river ever play a part? I mean, are people dumped in the river? Yeah, that's actually exactly what I thought about the river for this spot. So Bricktop Jackson, right, she ends up going with this guy named John Miller, who she had met. He was her bailiff in jail. And so after she gets out of jail for, I think this is the third time, Um, They hook up and they start running a little ring together. So he's the enforcer. She's doing the work. And then one night they get into a bit of a love or spat. I'm not 100% sure, but I would guess that there was a good amount of drinking in there. So one thing you should probably know about John Miller is that he used to be a boxer um, until he lost, like, his right forearm in an accident. And so then rather than get, like, a hook or a prosthetic, he decided to make a really diesel life choice um, and got a ball and chain implanted onto his arm. Yeah, no, this is true. Um, And so they get into a lover spat, they start arguing, and he goes to swing the ball at her. So she snatches the ball out of midair, uses the momentum to throw him down to the ground, and that's when she pulls out that custom-made knife, slashes his throat, and then rolls his body right into the river. New Orleans is a city that boasts outstanding food, fabulous music, and wonderful universities, 
but it also has a difficult history, one with more than 300 years worth of murders. It's a town full of ghosts and specters that haunt every inch of the French Quarter. And not all those ghosts come from crimes that happened hundreds of years ago. A recent article in the New York Times says that for more than 30 years, Louisiana has had the nation's highest murder rate. With that many deaths, it's no surprise that the region has its own approach to honoring the dead. Rather than holding somber private events, the city's famous jazz funerals celebrate the dead with loud public burial services. They are lively, they are fun, and they conflict with just about any funeral service you've ever seen. Tim says that jazz funerals are just perfect for New Orleans, a city where people defy every force that tries to get them to leave. Living in New Orleans is almost like an act of defiance in itself. It's like an act against God and of nature to like live here because like it floods. There are hurricanes that come and wake out the city. Even last week we had a tornado and devastated people's homes and yet still we're here. Still, still New Orleans is here. And so I think that like kind of like uh, the celebration of the dead is like is honoring kind of like that defiance. The story of the Crawford family and their mysterious deaths isn't featured in these New Orleans ghost tours, but maybe they should be. And back in 1910, it was only a matter of time before the public would hear their story, how one family lost four members to an enduring mystery that I've been trying to sort out. That July of 1910, the Crawfords were gathered inside their large home on Chestnut Street. They were worrying about the patriarch of the family, Walter Crawford, because he was in so much pain. And they were still mourning the death of his daughter, Mary Agnes, who had died just three weeks earlier. The 58-year-old gripped his hips as he moaned. Walter's four remaining daughters and his wife tried to tend to him, but it was useless. Walter was helpless. For days, he had complained of having fatigue and nausea and a loss of appetite. He had a metallic taste in his mouth. He seemed confused at times and always exhausted as if he were outmatched in a prize fight. Walter's 28-year-old daughter, Annie, brought him something to drink. His condition wasn't improving and it seemed clear that it wouldn't improve without medical help. Finally, the women became so concerned that Annie Crawford phoned a doctor at the neighbor's house just as she had for Mary Agnes a few weeks earlier. Dr. Edward Bacon rushed over, unzipped his medical bag, and examined Mr. Crawford. But his body was already cold. Just as suddenly as his symptoms had begun, they had ended. Walter Crawford died on July 15, 1910, inside their home on Chestnut Street. This was devastating for the Crawfords. Now two family members had died within three weeks of each other. Dr. Bacon surveyed Walter Crawford's body. There were no external marks or bruises, no signs of trauma. This didn't appear to be a crime. It was something else. But he needed to settle on a cause of death. Dr. Bacon pulled the sheet over Mr. Crawford. And then he talked with the family. Dr. Bacon considered Walter's symptoms. He had complained of feeling weak and nauseous. He had refused food. He was vomiting and he was confused. 
Walter eventually went into a stupor, slipped into a coma, and died. Dr. Bacon concluded that Walter Crawford died from natural causes, something called uremia poisoning. This medical condition is a buildup of toxins in the patient's blood because his kidneys have stopped filtering the toxins. Many times, uremia poisoning is a sign of kidney disease. Modern medicine would offer treatments like drugs or dialysis or a kidney transplant, but in 1910, they had not yet connected uremia as a measurement of kidney functioning. If the coroner had been alerted by Dr. Bacon, he might have taken a closer look at Walter Crawford's body. He might have even tested it for poison in the bloodstream. And if the results were positive, the medical examiner might have called the police. But any doctor searching for evidence of uremia poisoning would have been at a disadvantage in 1910. Modern physicians can administer a simple test to look for the presence of a molecule called creatine to confirm the kidney issue. Even though a chemical test for creatine had been developed in the late 1800s, it was cumbersome and complicated and not standardized. So it's certainly possible that Walter Crawford died from a common early 1900s disease, but it was also likely that he was poisoned. That was also the case with his daughter, Mary Agnes. She might have died from spinal meningitis, but murder was also probable. And if Annie Crawford had poisoned them both, she had gotten away with it. Throughout all of this, Annie held a cold reserve. She didn't cry. She didn't even seem bothered by her father's death. Yet she was still close with her sister, Emma Crawford. So again, she was capable of having close relationships. Historian Terence Fitzmorris says that Walter Crawford was certainly missed by the Crawford women, but neither he nor his brother Robert were ever a dominant voice in either of their households. Annie tried to control everyone. She argued with her sisters and her aunt, and the men stood by and said little. Later in the story, Annie's uncle Robert said he mostly just paid attention to his wife and no one else. And his brother seemed to do the same. So it was a very dysfunctional family. There's no question of, of that, you know. And I, I found that the men were without really any say-so in the matter. They took a back seat to everything. Despite that, wouldn't you expect for Annie Crawford to mourn the deaths of her older sister and her father? And if she didn't, doesn't that suggest that she could have killed them both? Was she exhibiting the callousness that I've talked about so much in stories about psychopaths or sociopaths? You remember Edward Ruloff, the killer from our first season of Tenfold More Wicked and of my book, All That Is Wicked. Edward showed no genuine remorse for the five murders that he committed, including the murder of his own infant daughter and his infant niece. Edward Ruloff feigned emotions to manipulate others, but Annie literally showed no emotions except with her sister, Emma. There are fewer women with antisocial personality disorder than men, about three to one. And women with ASPD tend to be less violent than men. They're just more manipulative. But remember Clara Phillips from season four? Never discount a woman's ability to kill with coldness. But back to the observation that Annie seemed detached from her family, that doesn't always mean that something's wrong. What if she were on the spectrum and didn't know how to identify and then express those emotions? That's a possibility, but she was close to Emma 
and she didn't seem to exhibit other signs of autism. I know that everyone mourns differently. It's difficult to be judgmental of how someone reacts to the death or the murder of a family member. And a good example of that is the wrongful conviction of Michael Morton in Texas. In 1986, Morton's wife, Christine, was murdered by a stranger, and within a short time, Michael was convicted of killing her solely on circumstantial evidence. When Michael Morton testified in 1987, he was calm and emotionless on the stand. The jury noticed, and it made the jurors uncomfortable. They assumed that he was a sociopath because of his apathetic reaction. How could he not weep over the death of his wife on the stand? The jury convicted him, and Michael Morton spent almost 25 years in prison before DNA evidence exonerated him. So keeping that in mind, I'm not quite ready to judge Annie Crawford based solely on her lack of reaction during these two deaths. She might not have had a personality disorder, or she might not have been on the spectrum, or she might not have simply been mad at her father and her sister. It might not have been any of those things. But if she did kill them, It seemed likely to be for the money, the life insurance money that she split with her sisters. They would now need to pay for another funeral. And I think that finding the family gravesite will be key. If it seems ornate and expensive, then perhaps Annie did spend a lot of money on the gravesite, most of that insurance money. Maybe money wouldn't turn out to be the motive. Now, for the second time in one month, the Crawford family held a funeral at St. Stephen Catholic Church. This was a standard event that all Catholic families were expected to have when a loved one died. If you were a Catholic, even in 1910, 11, and 12, the church is still pretty much a Trinitine church where the parish and the infrastructure of the church requires a mass, it requires a a sacred burial ground. It requires priests and deacons and sextons and the like. Hey, Q. Come, come with me. I think I know where he is. Where? My daughter and I are walking around St. Patrick's Cemetery No. 3 in New Orleans. We're searching for the Crawford gravesite, and it's difficult because there's no real map of the graves and the tombs, and some of the tombs are tall enough that it's easy to lose each other. Come here, baby. Where are you? Uh, where are you? St. Patrick's 3. I know, but I don't have a location. He's here. Where? He died in... Age 58? Yes. He died in like a Yes. So based on that... She said there's kind of no rhyme or reason for where they bury people. My daughter and I talk a little bit about the history of these older cemeteries. They call these um, City of the Dead, these types of cemeteries. Above ground. These look pretty old over here. Do you want to look real quick? 
See, these real big ones, I'm going to take a picture. These really big ones, I don't think the Crawfords could have afforded it. For the second time in a month, a Crawford family member was buried here in St. Patrick No. 3. In 1910, Walter's eldest daughter, Emma Leo, and her husband, Edward, once again traveled from Texas to attend the services. Once again, cemetery workers prepared the family plot for another Crawford body. Walter would be buried there at St. Patrick's Cemetery with his daughter, Mary Agnes. That's the gravesite my daughter and I are looking for. Nothing? Walter Crawford. I don't think it's going to be big, so let's look down here. No. Burials in New Orleans are different than they are in Texas or Wisconsin or Washington State. Author Alan Gotro explains how they're different in historic St. Patrick's Cemetery. The cemeteries, it's, it's a square city block. But there's over 150,000 people buried in there because of the burial traditions that we go through. And one of those things that we go through is they're above the ground because, you know, we're below sea level, the water table. Um, You know, back in the old days, you know, people would, after a big heavy rainstorm, people would go by the cemetery and they'd see grandma popping out the ground waving to them. As the water rose, so would the bodies. You could see why people in the 1800s may have believed that their loved ones were rising from the dead. There are stories of family members tying string to a dead person's hand and leaving the other end above ground to determine if their relative had escaped in the night. So they basically built these tombs above the ground, but beneath the tombs are pits. And a year and a day passes after a burial and these shelves are pulled out and the coffins drop into the pits and they uh, disintegrate. In the case of the Crawfords, the cemetery would wait at least a year, then gather the bones of the last person who died and place them in a bag. They would then bury them again inside the same grave. This would make room for another casket containing the most recently deceased person. So each family member was pushed to the side when a new relative would arrive. They all remained in the same grave. After Walter Crawford's funeral, the family tried to heal, but it was so difficult. The compounded grief was too much for Emma. Mary Agnes's death had been tragic. She was so young. But Walter Crawford was Emma's husband, and without him, she seemed lost. As historian Terence Fitzmorris mentioned earlier, Walter and Emma were both first-generation Americans. Walter's parents were from Ireland, and Emma's father was also Irish. Her maiden name was Steyer, but her mother was from France. Neither Emma or Walter went to school, but according to the 1910 census, they both knew how to read and write. They were raised in Louisiana, and after they married in 1877, they lived in several different cities in the state. But they eventually settled in New Orleans and moved into a large Victorian home on Chestnut Street in 1892. It was there that they raised their five daughters in the same house where Walter Crawford and Mary Agnes had both died so suddenly. Emma and Walter had been married for 33 years, and now Emma was 52 and a widow. The matriarch of the family grieved. Terence Fitzmorris says that Emma Crawford seemed inconsolable, 
Two tragedies in less than three weeks were too much. I think the mother really cracked up. She had lost her daughter and a husband. And so the mother was really in dire straits. Emma Crawford was clearly depressed by her husband's death. But what were the options to treat mental health in the early 1900s that didn't involve institutions? There weren't many. Talk therapy would have been unusual for people who weren't patients in state-run asylums or privately-run sanitariums. Instead, women presenting symptoms of depression or PTSD or bipolar disorder were labeled as hysterical, like we talked about earlier. They might have been institutionalized if they continued to act erratically. It was in Emma Crawford's best interest to suffer in silence. If she couldn't, perhaps her brother-in-law, Robert Crawford, might decide to have her institutionalized. So while Annie Crawford's father and sister had both died in a short period of time, they were diagnosed with different diseases by two different doctors. Mary Agnes had been afflicted with meningitis, while Walter had uremia poisoning. There was little reason to connect the two deaths, and even less reason to suspect murder. There were no autopsies, and both victims were buried quickly in the family plot. Unexpected deaths and rapidly moving diseases were not unusual in the early 1900s. In 1910, a man could expect to live to about age 48 and a woman to age 52. The top three causes of death were pneumonia, heart disease, and tuberculosis, but new treatments for all three were emerging. Fatal accidents, like with farm machinery, were another leading cause of death, even more common than cancer. Knowing all of that, it made sense that Annie Crawford or another family member had not been suspected of murder. And if a coroner didn't examine either body, then a general practitioner might not recognize the signs of an overdose. Poison expert Dr. Neil Bradbury tells me how coroners in the late 1800s and early 1900s would have determined that a victim died from morphine. One of the key telltale signs of a person who has died from a morphine overdose is that their pupils in their eyes become very small, pinpoint pupils it's called, and it's very indicative of morphine overdose. Dr. Bradbury and author Deborah Blum tell me about an 1898 case that illustrates this. It's the story of Dr. Robert Buchanan and Anna Sutherland in New York City. There was a case in New York in the late 1800s of a doctor who had abandoned his wife and taken up with a brothel owner and even had her as the receptionist for his doctor's office at one point. And naturally, this didn't uh, go down too well in the upper society of New York at the time. He started feeling shunned by his friends. And so he decided it was time to get rid of her and indeed poison her with a morphine overdose. But because he was a doctor, he knew that the pinpoint pupils would be a dead giveaway. And he had a way of getting around that. When you take morphine, it causes your pupils to pinpoint. So you get that pinprick, tiny, shrunken pupil effect, and it's a giveaway that you've been poisoned with morphine. Dr. Buchanan was smart and a physician, so he used that medical knowledge to try to get away with murder. And one of the ways that he got around it was by putting drops of another poison, atropine, onto the eyes. 
and atropine will cause the eyes to dilate. So there's no telltale pinpoint signs. Atropine enlarges your pupils. You go to the doctor and they put the drops in your eyes to enlarge pupils, right? So she died of morphine, but then he dropped the atropine in her eyes. And clearly he didn't get away with it because we now know the story. So how was he caught? Unfortunately, he had bragged about this in several bars around New York. And what's interesting is that when the case came to trial, the prosecution brought a cat into the courtroom. Oh, my gosh. They proceeded to kill the cat with a morphine overdose and then put drops of atropine into the cat's eyes. Pulled the cat's eyes back and showed the jury that the cat's eyes were no longer pinpoint. And as tragic as it was for the cat, this is probably one of the earliest examples of where forensic science was brought into a criminal trial case uh, in America. And eventually he was found guilty, convicted, and sentenced to death in the electric chair. Morphine has always been a mystery to me. I didn't know a lot about it before this story. Most of the poisoners from the 1800s that I've studied used arsenic or strychnine, not morphine. More modern cases that I've read about have involved antifreeze, which is sweet and odorless because its main ingredient is ethylene glycol. It makes antifreeze taste like sugar mixed with salt and vinegar, and before you know it, your kidneys have shut down. And then there's cyanide, which was used to contaminate Tylenol capsules in the 1980s. I also read about a murder weapon that I thought was unusual, Benadryl. Now, very few people die from an overdose of an antihistamine, especially if they don't have a pre-existing medical condition. But a medicine like Benadryl can be used as an accomplice to murder. In 2018, Lori Eisenberg went on a boat trip with her husband Larry on Lake Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. She had embezzled a half a million dollars from her job at the North Idaho Housing Coalition, and Larry was about to find out by reading it in a newspaper article that would be printed the next day. His children say that had he known about the embezzlement, he would have certainly divorced her immediately. But he didn't know, and once they were on the water alone, Lori encouraged him to drink a bottle of fruit juice that contained a large amount of Benadryl. Prosecutors say that once he became drowsy, Lori shoved her husband into the lake. At her sentencing hearing in 2021, Lori Eisenberg refused to admit that she killed Larry on purpose. She said that she intended to take her own life because of the embezzlement accusations. She claimed that Larry drank the juice mixed with Benadryl instead and then somehow ended up in the lake. Still, she addressed the court for 45 minutes, trying to absolve herself from any wrongdoing. Larry used to hate it when people said, I'm sorry. He said, instead of saying, I'm sorry, live your life in a way where you don't have to say, I'm sorry. But that's all I can say, even though it's wholly inadequate. All I can say is I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for everything I did, starting with the embezzlement that resulted in the lies, deceit, and ultimate betrayal of the love and the trust of the people I love, especially Larry. I want to state emphatically that I am responsible for Larry's death. Absolutely. Of course, she didn't explain why she waited two hours to call 911. Lori Eisenberg was sentenced to life in prison for killing her husband. 
another killer in a long line of killers throughout history who have murdered their spouses with the help of medicine or poison. We just heard about Benadryl being used to help a murderer in 2018, but it's definitely not the first time a milder medicine has helped a murderer drown their victim. Dr. Neil Bradbury tells me about another interesting case, this one in 1957, involving an English murderer who no longer wanted his pregnant wife. It's very analogous to the story of Ken Barlow. He was not actually convicted of using insulin, to kill his wife. He was convicted of drowning her. But in the case with Benadryl, as you mentioned, her brain was so severely compromised, she was unconscious. Um, Benadryl, as we know, if you take too much of it, will cause you to sleep and become unconscious. His wife, Elizabeth, was two months pregnant and feeling unwell. She was taking a bath when she drowned. And the question, certainly for Ken Barlow, was did he push his wife under the water in the bath when she was suffering from a coma induced by insulin? Which would be very analogous to the story you just mentioned of Benadryl. Benadryl strictly was not the method of murder, but the rendering of the individual unconscious before pushing them overboard would be essentially the same thing. It would just be a tool to get them unconscious and then commit the murder. Lori Eisenberg's husband and Ken Barlow's wife were both obstacles, so the killers removed those obstacles. That might seem like an unsympathetic way of looking at it, but perhaps there's insight from those cases that can help with the Crawford case. Had Annie Crawford's father and sister presented her with obstacles in 1910? She didn't have a job, but her family seemed to be supporting her financially. She wasn't paying rent for living in the family home. Her mother, Emma Crawford, used her husband's life insurance to pay for the house and for living expenses. Annie didn't have any male suitors, but she didn't seem concerned about that. Annie was an odd woman, for sure, and controlling. Her niece-in-law, Cecile Leo, remembers how strangely Annie would act when she eventually moved to Port Arthur to live with Cecile and Annie's nephew, Patrick. Remember that Annie's older sister, Emma, had lived in Port Arthur before she got married to Patrick Leo. They would go on to have Cecile's husband, Patrick, and his two sisters. They were real active in in, uh, St. Mary's Church. As a matter of fact, Mr. Leo, Pat's father, helped build the church. He was a bricklayer. And... Emma, Mrs. Leo, was an altar society member, and they'd have meetings and everything like that. (laughs) Emma would get so aggravated because she'd be having her little friends over for their meeting, and Annie would come in with a bucket of water and a mop and go right between all of them, you know, right in the middle of their meeting. And then she'd go mop the hallway. Anyhow, it was like, well, you don't have anything to do, but I, I'm, I'm cleaning house. You know? So you are engaging in recreation when I'm doing well, I'm, real I'm, work. Well, I'm doing all this work, you know. <laughs> and I remember Mary telling me that, and she said, oh, Mother would get so aggravated. <laughs> Yes, Annie was peculiar. 
But that didn't necessarily make her a killer. Though, if there were just one more suspicious death, she could be considered a serial killer. Now, as I said earlier, our society's idea of a serial killer is usually someone who picks victims and murders them for some sort of abnormal psychological pleasure or thrill. But the FBI says that a serial killer is someone who has killed at least three victims with a cooling off period in between, which would distinguish them from a mass murderer. If Annie Crawford did kill her father and sister, and if she killed any other family member, then she would technically be considered a serial killer, just like a gang member might technically be a serial killer if he or she kills several people over a period of time. Throughout history, there have been female killers who did fit that definition of a serial killer perfectly. This particular category of killers has fascinated society for centuries, including true crime writer Harold Schechter. He wrote a book about serial killer Bell Gunness, a notorious and brutal murderer. You know, I'd become very interested years ago in the whole phenomenon of female serial murder, at a time when you know, the received wisdom was there was no such thing as female serial murder. You know, I, I, I realize that there have been many, many female serial killers. They just tend to commit their crimes in different ways from male serial killers. One of the things that attracted me to the Bell Gunness case to begin with, generally speaking, most of the notorious female serial killers in, our, in the 19th century were poisoners. Right. I know that this is an odd question, but is death by poison more painful than death through other methods? You know, their victims suffered more agonies than Jack the Ripper's did. Right. You know, Jack the Ripper dispatched his victims very, very swiftly. All the atrocities were committed post-mortem. You know, where some of these serial killers, like Jane Toppin, you know, took this incredible perverse pleasure in prolonging the suffering of their victims. If Annie Crawford were a killer, it seemed unlikely that she did it for pleasure. No one reported any real animosity between Annie and her sister or her father. Let's go back to money as a motive. Remember, Mary Agnes had life insurance, and Annie's father, Walter, had even more life insurance, as well as more money in his estate. Annie could draw on her share from both policies if she wanted to. Alan Gotro offers some details about Walter's policy. Now, her father, Walter, had a life insurance policy and his total succession. Now, remember, this was a few years before that was one one thousand dollars was the total succession. I'm not not really sure how much it would be today. I figured that out. It's about thirty thousand dollars today. Almost half of it was from life insurance from the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. The other half came from the Ancient Order of the Druids, a fraternal organization similar to the Freemasons as a way to help with funeral expenses. Walter Crawford was a member and his wife was the sole beneficiary. Annie had to split the money between her three remaining sisters and her mother, Emma. So there was $1,000 plus $300 from Mary Agnes's life insurance. Annie had a stake in almost $40,000 in modern day money split five ways. Less than $10,000 doesn't seem like enough of a motive, except for one thing. Annie Crawford still hadn't secured a job. But even then, her other sisters worked, so there was still money coming into the Crawford house. 
At this point, we still don't have enough evidence to say that Annie Crawford definitely murdered her older sister and her father. But Alan is fairly sure that she was guilty. When we discussed potential motives, Alan kept returning to the antisocial personality disorder theory, which is valid. What is the motive? Is the motive that, is it the money? Because, you know, if she wasn't getting that much money from the deaths, so what does that leave us with? Well, let's eliminate the, the impossible and see what's possible. Could it be that she just truly enjoyed killing? Yep, could be. Yeah, so I think, you know, the motive is not secondary. I just think that there's a couple of them there. So you think this could be some kind of personality disorder, not just greed, right? Um, well, dealing with true crime or historical crime, as I'm sure you are, you know, because you're experienced at it. Um, I would have to describe her as sociopathic, psychopathic, addictive personality. Addictive. That's a key word in this story, but not yet. Here's a clue. Addiction did affect the Crawford family, more than one member, and it might have been Annie. She seemed distant a lot. Maybe addiction was why. She seemed to collect a lot of drugs. Would she really need that many pills to murder people in her family? It's not hard to imagine that she might have had an addiction, but that she was a functioning addict. In July of 1910, Emma Crawford grieved the loss of her husband. Her daughters wore black once again. Actually, they never stopped wearing it from Mary Agnes's death the previous month. Walter's brother Robert and Robert's wife Mary visited the family. Annie continued to cook for everyone, and the Crawfords seemed to be ready to begin healing. The sisters returned to work. Well, just Elise, who had her stenography job at the railway. Annie didn't have a job, and Gertrude was still in school. At this point, Elise was the only breadwinner, and she was so grief-stricken over the two deaths that she might not be able to continue her work. Her relationship with the grocer was unstable, and she secretly coped with all of that in a very bad way. Over the next week or two, the Crawfords returned to a normal routine. Gertrude went to school while Annie kept house, but not for long because about two weeks after Emma's husband Walter died, she started to feel awful. Her stomach ached, she felt weak and nauseous, she had a metallic taste in her mouth. She was laying on her bed. Despite Annie's attempts to offer her mother food and water, she wasn't hungry or thirsty. The family felt frightened once again. What was happening? It felt like an epidemic was sweeping through their family. They thought the worst. If Emma Crawford had the same illness that Walter had suffered from, then she could slip into a coma and die very quickly. Annie rang a doctor, Dr. P.W. Falls. He rushed to Emma's bedside. The 54-year-old was babbling. She made no sense. And then she went unconscious. Everyone around Emma seemed concerned. Was there any medicine they could give her, they asked Dr. Falls. No, was the reply. They needed to wait it out, just like they did with Mary Agnes, and just like they did with Walter. It was torturous for everyone, especially Emma. No one seemed to remember one small detail that would later become very important. Emma Crawford had a life insurance policy, just like Mary Agnes, 
and just like Walter. But I'm sure Annie Crawford remembered that. On the next episode of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right. Elise had a child out of wedlock, and she was just broken about the loss of her child, given up in childbirth, and the loss of her sister and father. The people in the house were concerned for the young lady having lost the father and the younger sister due to what was termed, quote, mysterious illnesses. The thing that's hard to understand, we try to think about the rationale for poisoners. I think a lot of the time we're just unable to do that because there isn't a rationale. We're trying to think about a rational explanation for something that just isn't working. These people are not thinking right. They do have mental health issues that prevent them from thinking in an irrational way. If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked, which is based on the first season of Tenfold War Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold War Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold War. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.